Thank you for tuning in to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto. I am David Hostetter with Lauren Latour and Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. We'll be interviewing Adiat Janaid later this episode about an ongoing segment she's going to produce for the show about environmental racism. Continuing our new tradition of checking in before diving in. Lauren. Thank you so much, David. Um, Yeah, I would love to hear what has been on your mind this week, if anything. Has anything been on that beautiful brain? Well, actually, I was noticing, or I couldn't help but notice, how there is a certain hue to the winter sun uh, as it comes through the westward sky. There's a silver sheen that it imbues the overclass, the overcast clouds with. It gives one the 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 sensation that perhaps there is a a glowing, immutable opal sphere self lit behind that that row of clouds, and I think it's specific to this time of year. I love that continuing continuing the trend of turning your eyes upward. What is that Oscar Wilde phrase? My feet are in the gutter, but my head is in the stars. Well, I'll have to dive deeper into the gutter. Uh, on this show, at least. And uh, what about you, Lauren? Something I've been thinking about this week, actually, something I've been thinking about today, because right before we recorded, I had a, an organizing meeting with a, a group I um, well organized with here in Ottawa on um, unceded Anishinaabe Algonquin territory. But um yeah, the group I organize with in my non-work hours is going through this like brainstorming visioning process to determine like how and where we want to show up in our community because um, we've been pretty, we, we, we really receded during the majority of the pandemic. We didn't really quite know how to, how to organize. So we're kind of back at the drawing table trying to figure out what we want to look like and what we want to do um, and how best to use our organizing power. And we've decided we really want to focus on a municipal green new deal, which for us is kind of just shorthand for like a justice-based climate safe future for all, um, regardless of whether or not it is, it is branded as such, but where, where we're finding we're struggling um, is that as, as white organizers, many of whom work for environmental nonprofit organizations during like the nine to five hours. Our first instinct is always to organize for policy change, regardless of the level that might be, whether it's municipal, federal or or provincial. And what we're sort of realizing now is that within at least this sort of organizing circle we've established for ourselves, we would rather spend our time shaping our communities sort of in the present, building resiliency and caring for one another in ways that don't require state intervention. Um, either as opposed to or, or in addition to sort of appealing to the municipal government for stronger climate policy. And, and we're realizing it's something we don't actually know how to do. Um, as organizers and activists, we've been really, really focused on the policy level for so long. And we're realizing that we don't quite know how to harness people power in a way that isn't ultimately appealing to the state to make change via policy. Um, and I think for us, it's sort of, it's a part of decolonizing our organizing and activism And I hope listeners don't find it trite when I say that. Um, But I would really love to sort of appeal to our listenership, I think, here and hear from other organizers who who might be listening, because I think regardless of 
someone's reaction to the to to my statement, whether it's sort of one of recognition um, or like disgust um, at hearing how I've chosen to spend my time as an as a quote unquote activist, I think I could probably learn from you. Um, and then because we have this platform, I could potentially pass those teachings on to others within the Green Majority community as well. So I would really invite people to either tweet us their thoughts or email us via like the contact field on our website, greenmajority.ca, because I'm sort of, and myself and, and my co-organizers are sort of having this sort of existentialist conversation about how to show up in our communities in ways that aren't us appealing to other people of power, but actually truly harnessing and sitting in our power as, as a community level grassroots organization. Two weeks ago, I uh, said that armed white men with weapons training were planning uh, protests around the U.S. to prevent Biden from becoming president. Obviously, that didn't happen. I don't want to spread paranoia or fear, and I don't want to valorize the FBI who suspected something like that might happen. Fear and paranoia are not good things. It's nonetheless true that white authoritarianism on our continent is not just going to disappear because Joe Biden has made it to the White House. There is a sitting member of the U.S. Congress who has said that Jews caused the California wildfires and school shootings are faked in order to take people's guns. If I emphasize racist authoritarianism as a growing force in our culture, it's not just because it's becoming more blatant and could conceivably assert a more rigid and darker form of violence. It's because it's our bread and butter. Dominance by rich white men is a founding component of the U.S. and Canada. It's constitutive of the structures we navigate daily. In our Canadian national pride, we like to think that uh, we've gone beyond settler colonialism, but we still behave like a settler colony at war with the people whose lands we stole. Saskatchewan, for instance, only four days ago, stopped officially targeting indigenous mothers as unfit to care for their newborn infants. This system of birth alerts, whereby provinces send social workers to mothers to determine if they should keep their babies, overwhelmingly takes children from indigenous people, and ended in Ontario only just a few months ago. It's still happening in Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. Our wonderful universal healthcare system still treats Native people as less deserving, and sometimes sterilizes them, and sometimes outright leaves them to die. We can't even manage to provide the reserves we created with clean drinking water. I mention all this because we can't just impose a self-assured environmentalism on our existing society. We have to transform the way we think about harmony. We have to loosen our attachment to existing structures and question their fundamental legitimacy. There's no such thing as a green society ruled by greed and self-interest. Mm -hmm. 
Relatedly, the industries that are destroying our ecosystems are also warring against First Nations. We seemed close to a nationwide reckoning a year ago when major railways were being blockaded across the country before the effort was brought to a halt by COVID-19. A panel discussion organized by The Leap two months ago can be found online called The Ransom Economy, What Shutdown Canada Reveals About Indigenous Land Rights. Part of the idea is that Indigenous people are held hostage to the settler economy through an endless land claims process and systemic impoverishment. And so we can perpetually say, you really need this money, but also this is not officially your land, so we're going to remove you from it anyway, so you should really take the money. This is often done to give our police the apparent legitimacy to remove people from their lands to make way for pipelines and mines. RCMP pensions themselves are partially invested in the coastal gas link pipeline in Wet'suwet'en territory in northern BC. We even created a specific police body called the Community Industry Response Group in 2017 to protect industrial interests from dissenting people on the ground. Moreover, it often happens that mines, for instance in Nunavut and Yukon, in no way fairly compensate the communities they operate in. Another idea from the Ransom Economy panel was that UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, if it is to be implemented in a real way in Canada, must be implemented by the First Nations themselves, each according to their own law. Otherwise, UNDRIP will become a game of empty so-called recognition. Chief Donnie Morris of the Kachinamakusa Beninawug First Nation in Ontario is arguing that the proposed Bill C-15, through which Canada would go about implementing UNDRIP, as it stands, is based on the mistaken assumption that Canada, barely 150 years old, has the authority to give out rights and title on lands that have been occupied for at least 5,000 years. We therefore need as a society to take a hard look at our continuing colonial history, if we are to have a society worthy of calling itself one. California is inching toward a year-round fire season, as 100-mile-per-hour winds, quite unusual for this time of year, hit the state last month and caused 11 million people to have their power cut for fear of downed power lines sparking new wildfires. Also in California, part of the Pacific Coast Highway recently collapsed into the ocean from rain and erosion. Regarding sea level rise, wildfires, and unpredictable weather, the energy mix quotes Chris Schmidt of the State Department of Transportation as saying, quote, It's really even hard to absorb the rate of change that is occurring. The level of threat is escalating at rates that even the climate change scientists did not anticipate. So even our best estimates of what might happen may be severely wrong. 
A new study in the journal Ocean Science is saying that sea level rises are indeed rising faster than the IPCC has so far predicted. A new study in the open-access geoscience journal The Cryosphere is showing that the Earth lost 28 trillion tons of ice between 1994 and 2017. That's the equivalent of 28 ice cubes, each taller than Mount Everest and reaching 10 kilometers in every direction. It's enough to cover the UK, or the state of Michigan, in a 100-meter-thick sheet of ice. This ice loss is, of course, happening on every continent. A new study in the journal Nature is showing that the waters around Antarctica have warmed a lot more than was previously estimated. The UNEP has put out its fifth adaptation gap report that complements its emissions gap report, and it is showing that climate adaptation efforts worldwide are still terribly underfunded. So just as our emissions are still going up, and the world's largest economies are not meeting even their insufficient Paris pledges, climate adaptation is also lagging. A new study in One Earth shows that a quarter of known bee species have not been recorded since 1990. Yes, there was the new adaptation report that came out that complements the emissions gap report. So then I just went and I, and I quickly looked at the emissions gap report, not even the full thing, just the executive summary, because I wanted to hear what it said about Canada. Really simple. I just control F Canada <laughs> um, to look through this executive summary. We're only mentioned a handful of times, but one of the times we are mentioned, uh, it's talking specifically about um, looking at G20 members to see if they're on track to achieve their sort of, they call them unconditional NDC commitments. So um, in Canada, like we know, that's um, the 30% below uh, 2005 levels by 2030. Um and this is Harper's target. That's still our official NDC, though with the new like healthy economy, healthy environment um, uh, policy policy package, I would say that was put out last year. Um, we could potentially bump that anywhere from two to like 10, 12% more. Um, either way, regardless, this report that UNEP put out that came out in December of last year, December, 2020 states that like, we're still not on track to hit that NDC commitment um, based on pre COVID-19 projections. Though I, I would reckon that even taking into advantage, uh, taking into consideration COVID-19 projections, we're, we're still not on track for that. Um, really curious to see, unfortunately it's, it's 10 months out what the, um, what the emissions gap report for next year is going to say, uh, taking into consideration all the new measures that are supposed to be lined up with, um, with the healthy environment, healthy emissions or healthy environment, healthy economy package. I keep calling it he, he in my mind, which I freaking hate that that is the new, um, <laughs> the new, the new term for, for us to use. But anyway, thinking about the emissions gap report then got me thinking of course about the Canadian or about the climate change performance index, which also was released really recently, which play, which ranked Canada 58th out of 61 when taking into account uh, greenhouse gas emissions, um, taking into consideration like renewables, energy use, climate policy. Um, and the only countries that places us ahead of are Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the U S. 
Um, and again, it's, it's just a reminder that with everything that's been happening lately, with all the great new policy that's come out, we're still by no means something, somebody that you could consider to be a, a climate leader. Um, and I know I keep harping about it all the time, but I'm going to go back to sort of bill C12 because we're in this moment as a nation right now where climate accountability legislation is being debated. Um, I believe it goes to a second reading in the house within the next couple of weeks and the environment committee within the next couple of weeks. And, um, People have been asking for this legislation for over 10 years. So it's it's great that we're getting some sort of accountability legislation, um, but it's still just falling so short of what we want, um, especially when you compare it to accountability, accountability legislation out of the UK, where it's been so successful. Uh, the UK's emissions have fallen 38% since 1990. Meanwhile, ours have risen something like 21%. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it's something like 28%. And obviously understanding that the UK is in the petro state that Canada is, but it's still it's it's more than disappointing. Um, it's indicative of the fact that I think one of the reasons that the UK has been so successful is because their account- accountability legislation has been so strong, um, especially because it it ensures that the government is um, sort of it's it's hard to it's hard to explain it, but the government is essentially legally liable um, for failing to meet its climate targets, and even and in Canada's accountability legislation, at least as it stands, understanding that that amendments haven't passed, there is no. Um, sort of liability mechanism in there. It's it's accountability legislation in the sense that that the government has to do a lot of reporting, um, has to do a lot of um, new target development and stock taking, but there is no, there, uh, the Canadian government, if they meet their, if they fail to meet their targets, still isn't legally accountable or liable for that um, in, in sort of whatever way that, that might mean, whatever that consequence looks like. Um, and that's really disappointing. And I think ultimately it means that Canada's accountability accountability legislation won't be strong enough and won't has the potential stands to not actually get the um, get the emissions reductions that we need within the next few years because we only have we know this we only have another sort of 10 years really and um, and the accountability legislation as it stands doesn't kick in for another 10 years in the sense that one of the demands from the environmental movement was um, an ask for a carbon budgeting and an ask for stock taking to start to take place in 2025, this accountability legislation doesn't have that. So it means we have to wait another 10 years to really even begin to hold ourselves accountable. When I was trying to think of what 10 years looks like, this is so lame and it totally dates me, but I was thinking like, that's all of, that's all of the run of the TV show friends. Um, from like the time that like the first episode, Rachel walks into Central Park and like a puffy sleeved wedding dress and it ends with her choosing to get off a plane to be with Ross. And it's like that entire 10 years is the amount of time that we're not going to have this accountability legislation kick in. And that's really disappointing because through the climate change performance index, through the emissions gap report, through the adaptation emissions gap report, we know that we need to take stronger action faster than that. Do you know anything about, I hear, I hear angry uh activists saying stuff like uh oh the uk says that it has reduced that amount but that's but they say they argue that it's based partially on having exported their emissions but also uh like having done some sort of accounting crap right clever accounting that's a really really good question and to be totally honest i don't have that answer um because I believe that 38% is a number that I got from, I think, uh, either if there's like climate 
there's carbon tracker and then there's another tracker. And I got the information from that. But then I actually just saw today a critique of, of the sort of the mechanism or the, the evaluation process for, for the numbers like this. So I don't actually have a good answer to that, but I think that's maybe a task for me to go away and Google is to see how exactly it got that 38% and if it's just an issue of clever accounting, because it could very well be.
That was a song called Out in Myself, featuring Emma, by uh, a band called Men I Trust. Thank you very much. And uh, we're back at the Green Majority. So a couple weeks ago, uh, Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, said that Trudeau should fight back with some sort of tariff against Biden's cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, and that this cancellation was a direct attack on Canada's economic interests in general, our largest industry, and by far our largest export to the United States. Ross Bellet recently argued for the National Observer that, one, the U.S. will get as much Alberta bitumen as it wants anyway from other pipelines, Two, Keystone XL would not have increased oil sands investment, which will disappear as a matter of course, with or without new pipelines. And three, there is no way to make oil sands crude production environmentally acceptable. Environmental Defense recently put out a report saying that the transition away from fossil fuels that is inevitable and already underway need not in any sense cripple our economy uh, or labor market since fewer than 1% of Canadian jobs are tied to the oil sector. The fossil fuel industry creates a lot fewer jobs per million dollars Canadian invested compared with the economy at large. And only 18 out of Canada's 152 communities rely on fossil fuels for over 5% of their jobs. The report advocates that those 18 communities be provided with support programs. Yeah, this environmental defense report is really fantastic. Um, And it's one that I would encourage people to read. Actually, I think we mentioned it uh, when we were talking with Robin Tress last week, but it's... um, it's the it's the study path transition report, I believe. And another number that really jumped out at me when I was looking at it was um, between 2014 and 2019, for every one job that disappeared from fossil fuel industries, 42 were created in other fields. So yes, this is a sunsetting industry, but we're making those lost jobs up in spades in other in other spaces. Um, so it's. <sighs> It's hard because, again, I don't want to discount someone's livelihood. I don't want to force someone to take a job they don't want. But there's something to be said for like at the macroeconomic level, loss of the fossil fuel industry isn't going to decimate the economy like we've been told it would. And and I think this is something that um, the the climate movement in coalition with the labor movement really needs to figure out how to effectively message because as a nation, we are so tied to the idea that, that oil and gas prop us up and oil and gas support us. And it's only via oil and gas that we are able to show up as even a remotely major player at the international level, at like the G20 level or whatever. And, and it's simply not true. And it's, and it's just a matter of, uh, effective messaging and effective storytelling and making sure that yes, the folks in the fossil fuel industry who are transitioning out of that work, whether it be for environmental reasons or for tech related reasons, there's a whole lot of jobs that are being lost in the fossil fuel industry as a result of, um, technological development, self-driving vehicles, for instance. Um, but like, yes, those folks need to be supported, but we also need to do we need to do a good job of sort of reshaping that narrative around 
what quote unquote Canadian values are and what quote unquote makes us makes us a nation, which is like kind of a gross, sticky colonial concept. So I understand why it's a hard conversation to have. Um, but we also we really, really need our government to be brave here. And we need a prime minister who isn't so afraid of offending the oil and gas sort of cohort um, in the West that he that he continues to like do things like um, get mad at Biden when Keystone is canceled because because yes, you could argue that Trudeau's always known that Keystone is going to be canceled and it's just a tokenistic sort of um, cover for him that he's just he's just sort of pretending to lament the death of it for the sake of saving face out West. But I think that comes at a real cost because as long as we have a prime minister who's who's willing to even say those things to save face to try to save some some vote and some political clout out West, he is delegitimizing the the reality that is the fact that we aren't reliant on this industry the way we've been told we are. So we need Trudeau, we need Wilkinson, we need our our political leadership to stand up and admit to the fact publicly that we don't need this industry to survive. And we haven't for a long time. Um, and going forward, it's not going to be a dark and scary world that we're, that we're making the changes we need to. And yes, there's a lot of work ahead, but like it's already happening and it's not a bad thing. And that's sort of like my main takeaway from a report like this is that we've, we've been sold a bill of goods and we need to see some real political leadership to, to sort of write that narrative wrong. I heard a pithy statement, uh, like last year or the year before to the effect that Canada is like three or four mining companies in a trench coat. And, uh, so, but do you know anything about the extent to which, uh, we have the, we have these massive international, a few massive international resource extraction corporations perhaps that go into other countries and make massive profits and then do they provide a whole bunch of money to our government in the term of tax in the form of tax dollars and then is our society itself built around uh uh the the largesse of 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 a network of 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 large resource extraction companies is that is that is that a viable critique i yeah it's it's a hard one and honestly it might be worth having somebody on from like an organization like mining watch to talk about that because that's definitely um a side of the sort of extractivist story that we don't spend enough time talking about at least on this podcast because i think it's it's one that's a bit of a knowledge gap for us but um yeah, Canada does have a really strong presence overseas when it comes to mining and extraction. But again, I would venture a guess that we don't really see that money come back to public coffers and it doesn't really benefit the everyday Canadian in any way because I'm sure those companies don't pay their taxes in full. I'm sure they use a lot of tax loopholes and I'm almost certain that the C like, like, you know, like I'm sure the CEOs make gazillions of dollars and the laborers they hire, whether they be laborers who are, um, like from those countries that they're mining in or whether they're brought over from Canada, I'm sure they're not paid. Well, I shouldn't say that. We know folks who work in, in extractivist industries do tend to make a pretty decent hourly wage because the risk is high, but, but because the pay is good, but Anyway, no, I'm I'm sure we don't actually get a lot of that money coming back to us in public coffers, but that's kind of just a guess, unfortunately. And again, I think it's it's a bit of a knowledge gap on our part. So we should 
You should spend some time looking into that. Like I said, maybe talk to somebody from Mining Watch. The Alberta government, again, which has spent millions of dollars trying to prove that environmental activists are being funded by foreign interests who are trying to kill the oil sands for their own benefit, has given a third deadline extension to the panel that is supposed to produce this report and prove its thesis, probably because they're having a lot of trouble doing so. The same effort by the Alberta government uh, spent $28,000 on another so-called report to the effect that climate journalists are part of a global conspiracy to kill capitalism. Also in Alberta, the government, after opening up previously protected areas of the Rocky Mountains for coal mining, has now cancelled 11 of those leases, but open pit mining could still go ahead in some of the areas that were opened. Some fear that, apart from ripping open the mountains, the projects could contaminate the headwaters of a river that feeds 200,000 people. A new report, meanwhile, shows that methane emissions from abandoned oil wells in Canada and the U.S. have been greatly underestimated. The annual, um, the annual methane emissions from these wells was underestimated by 20% in the U.S., and by 150% in Canada. British Columbia Premier John Horgan has announced that two new reviews are in order for the Site C hydroelectric dam, which is being built on the Peace River for around $3 million a day, and appears to be not necessarily structurally sound. Chief Roland Wilson of the West Moberly First Nations has written a letter to Horgan and the B.C. government arguing that the dam is unsafe, unnecessary, and unlawful, since it's being built on a weak foundation. New electricity can be found for the same price in wind, geothermal, and industrial efficiency, and that the dam is in violation of the treaty rights of the First Nations who occupy the land it's being built in. Something I was thinking about when I was listening to there wasn't necessarily specific to any one of the particular stories, but I'm just being reminded of the importance of the provinces showing up on climate over the next few months. Um, something that was sort of discussed or that has been discussed both around both around the launch of the healthy environment, healthy economy um, package, uh, Canada's potential target and um, and even digging back into C12, the accountability legislation. Is, is this question of sort of federalism in Canada and how that affects our climate policy, because there is so much that the federal government won't touch because it's potentially contentious. It's potentially a question of jurisdiction. Um, and and we need to, as citizens, find a way. I think I think we're really good at um demanding a lot from Trudeau and from the federal government when it comes to climate, we're not as good at focusing on provincial players. Um, and I think that's something that's a way that sort of civil society needs to step up its game. And that's not to say people aren't doing good work, but I think, I think it just means as a collective society, we need to sort of shift some focus and shift some pressure to the provinces because they have so much power when it comes to actually reducing some of our emissions. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of um, sort of the whole the whole process of amendments within Bill C-12. Like I said, it's it's going to 
um, a second reading and, and environment committee soon. Um, and one of the things that I know are sort of up for debate is, is, is the environmental committee was or community rather sort of the climate community was really pushing for, um, uh, carbon budgets and, um, what, what are referred to as, um, like subnational carbon budgets. So that could be sectoral carbon budgets, or that could be provincial, uh, carbon budgets. And, and those are so necessary because it's like, I like to think of it like, um, if I'm trying to pay off my credit card debt, it's good for me to have a general target for that to say, I want to get to zero credit card debt by 2040 or whatever. But what's really helpful is if I budget myself to get there. So I know how much money I have to spend each month and how much money I have to pay down or whatever. Um, and by Canada refusing to budget, it, it makes it that much harder to meet those targets in a timely fashion and to make sure that we don't overshoot too much before we have to bring emissions back down. Um, and, and from what I understand, the federal government is completely uninterested in developing or suggesting carbon budgets at a subnational level because they know they'll get pushback from the provinces. Um, they know there will be um, sort of people, people will get upset about that the way they got upset about, um, uh, putting a price on carbon, um, at the provincial level. So it's this weird question of federalism within Canada and how it always tends to hold us up when it comes to climate policy. And, and I certainly don't have the answers for it, but all I do know is that civil society really needs to step up and put pressure on the provinces to say, hey, we need you to cooperate here and we need you to be ambitious because without your active participation and willing participation in Canadian climate policy and contributing to sort of a federal plan and, and, and cooperating with it, we're not gonna make it um, because as, as much as I wish it all came down to federal policy, it simply doesn't. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. And now for a quick jump into our mailbag. This is a part of the show where we take questions from listeners and do our best to provide answers. If you'd like to submit a question, tweet at us at Green Majority or contact us via our website at greenmajority.ca. Here's friend of the show Tara to read our latest question. Today's listener was wondering which type of vehicle is more environmentally friendly, an electric vehicle or a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle? And does the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle have a large lithium iron battery like an EV? So this is an evolving question and one with many caveats. The biggest questions that determine the answer are in regards to how the hydrogen is being created as in if it's being created by fossil fuels, carbon capture techniques, or green energy, and also how clean the energy grid is that is supplying electricity to an electric vehicle. 
The major advantage of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles over electric is that they do not need a lithium-ion battery. This means that they don't need to face the challenge of what to do at the end of life with these batteries, which at the moment is a very low percentage of them being recycled. And it means that they are less reliant on mining of lithium, which has become a growing environmental concern as demand for the metal increases. That said, as electric vehicles increase in popularity, the impact of scale should allow for significant improvement of recycling rates of the batteries, which should address at least a part of both of these concerns. Now, the argument against hydrogen is that at the moment, a vast percentage of hydrogen right now is what they refer to as gray hydrogen. This requires fossil fuels to create. Over time, this should be improved by the uptick in green hydrogen, which is, used by, which is created by using renewables. However, the growth of that market is expected to take some time. Now, if you want to look at the life cycle carbon emissions, which take into account the manufacturing process as well as the use of the vehicle, the data for each is quite similar. Pulling from published articles in Auto Express, estimates are right now that an average electric vehicle would release approximately 124 grams of CO2 per kilometer over its lifetime, whereas compared to 120 grams of CO2 per kilometer for a hydrogen fuel cell, which you know, obviously isn't that big of a difference. But honestly, the, the biggest thing that will really impact this, or will impact the question of what kind of vehicle one should theoretically buy or use, is scale. You know, at the moment, 3.2 million plug-in electric vehicles sold in 2020, whereas there were just under 24,000 hydrogen fuel cell vehicles worldwide in 2019. So due to this discrepancy in timelines, it feels almost certain that for now, passenger vehicles will be electric as the primary option. Though, as a friend of the show, Matthew Klippenstein, pointed out on a previous hydrogen episode earlier this year, there is a possibility and perhaps even a probability that we'll see hydrogen fuel cells play a bigger role in the decarbonization of transportation industries like long-haul trucking and shipping. So... The answer is, at the moment, roughly the same. A few things will probably change over time, but ultimately, due to the fact that you're looking at a much, much more mature market and ability to produce electric vehicles, it's pretty safe to say that they will be the ones that we'll all be using. Thanks so much for this question. We're always looking for more, so please do tweet at us at GreenMajority or email us at GreenMajority.ca. And now, on with the show. We here at The Green Majority you know, have been bringing you stories about the environment since 2006. You know, through the years, there has been increased knowledge and general acceptance of the fact that the world is facing a climate crisis, and stories about the environment have begun to go mainstream, as if the environmental issues and the climate crisis weren't enough. How long comes COVID-19? And it's been almost a year now since the World Health Organization declared that COVID-19 was a pandemic. We have all been affected in one way or another, but long-term res care residents, healthcare workers, marginalized communities, and essential workers are bearing the brunt of its negative impacts far more than the rest of us. The killing of George Floyd last May in 2020 brought another hidden pandemic to the forefront. 
for Black and Indigenous people and people of color, evidence of systemic racism has been anything but hidden for centuries. But when it comes to headlines in the modern age of racism, this has been mostly invisible. The death of George Floyd created a wave of impact that has rippled across society, and many are calling this a time of racial reckoning. But what does this have to do with the environment? As previous episodes have aimed to show, there is a significant more connection than most people might realize. And to dive deeper, we are so excited to be joined by Adia Janaid, who has been looking into this and will be covering it for the Green Majority over the coming months. Adia is here to give us a bit of a preview of this series. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Stefan. So, as I said, we're looking and hoping to make this uh, you know, an ongoing series, but to be able to do that, you have to start with a strong foundation. So perhaps you can tell us how, as you approach this work, what is environmental racism? Well, Stefan, I'd like to start with going with a definition that was developed by the, the person who coined the term. It was a term coined in 1982 by a man named Benjamin Chavez, who is a civil rights leader from the United States. And he described it this way. He said, racial discrimination in environmental policymaking, the enforcement of regulations and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color from leadership of the ecology movements. So that was how Chavez defined environmental racism. And I think what's key in the term is, is, is that it's a form of systemic racism. And so, you know, that leads to communities of color being forced to be in proximity to toxic waste sites, such as sewage, sewage works, mines, landfills, power stations, and things like that. For sure. Yeah. And what's interesting is as the climate crisis has expanded, the impacts of environmental racism have become in some ways a global phenomenon, not that they always weren't in some ways, but especially because of the fact that those who will experience climate change the worst are most predominantly you know, black and brown bodies. And so we are no longer just sort of seeing it in a local context. It's, it's really now a global context in which the rich, whiter Western nations are subjecting you individuals to this harm, really, universally. That's right. Although Chavez was talking about the situation in the United States, as you say, it's global. We certainly know it's a serious uh, situation in Canada. But the effects are, are felt and seen around the world. And again, as, you, as you've rightly pointed out, disproportionately by those uh, in, in countries where the, you know, the dominant populations are people of color. Yeah. And so what got you interested in this topic? Well, I've had a long-term concern for the environment. I'm, I'm thinking of, about the fact that I... I was trying to remember how old I was, but I think I was around six or seven when I, I won a, an art competition that depicted a, my concern about the impact of garbage and waste on the oceans. And I don't know where I learned about that. I just remember, I can still visualize the image that I uh, drew for that art competition. So that was a few years ago. <laughs> so I've had that interest in the environment. And I've also been 
dedicated to anti-racism, equity, racial justice, human rights, justice work, social justice work in general, but I've been doing a lot of work on anti-racism and racial justice issues for, for decades. And then last year, when you first asked me to contribute to the, to the show, was shortly after the uh, civil rights icon, John Lewis, the congressman who, you know, well known for his civil rights act- activism died. And I'd come across an article that talked about his environmental activism as well, which wasn't as well known in general. And we discussed that on the show and we'll revisit that. So I've been going even more, even though I've been involved with organizations that are doing anti-racism work for a long time, my work in this area has really increased substantially in the last couple of years. And I wanted to bring that interest, those interests together, the uh, environmental and the anti-racism. And then a third, and that's sort of underneath it all for me, has to do with storytelling and creativity and spirituality, which I think are ways to address healing on a number of fronts. So that's what, that's what got me interested. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit, uh, if I can, on that third point. Well, explain my bias. I am deeply interested in storytelling, so I'm curious if you can just talk a little bit more about that. Well, storytelling... We are, I, I don't know who we are without story. I mean, we, we exist by stint of breath and story. And the stories we tell ourselves have everything to do with how we show up in the world and how we contribute to and also try to alleviate some of the challenges that we're talking about when we talk about the environment or or racism. Stories have the power to inspire, to encourage, entertain, heal. I see story as part of creativity. I'm interested in storytelling in all kinds of forms. Yeah, so that's how I would address that. So, so then, so in the term of stories, what, what kinds of stories uh, will you be sharing with us? Well, as you've pointed out, um, Green Majority has been covering a number of these issues for some time, things like Chemical Valley in Northern Ontario. And so I think that while we'll look at some of those stories, what I'm interested in exploring a bit is how communities that are, are most affected are resisting or trying to keep themselves safe and also challenge those with the power to change governments and, and others uh, and industry, how they're going about doing that. So part of what I'm interested in is how communities organize and use their creativity to bring awareness to their concerns and also to try and change their circumstances. Some of the other stories that I'm interested in looking at have to do on the political level. So for example, uh, Lenore Zan, who is currently a federal member of the, the Liberal Party. She's from Nova Scotia and she introduced a bill called the House of, uh, into the House of Commons 
on February 26th of last year called the National Strategy to Redress Environmental Racism Act, Bill C-230. It was put forward to second reading on the 8th of December, 2020. So I'd like to look into what that legislation is about and where it stands at this point. What's the government's position on that legislation? Of course, some of the other stories have to do with the impact of environmental racism on Indigenous and communities of people of of African descent in Nova Scotia. So uh, there are a number of stories from that uh, community. And of course, Green Majorities covered Barassi Narrows, First Nation quite a bit and others. So there are just a lot of issues in Canada. And I hope that we'll have an opportunity to explore them. I'm sure we will. So what are you hoping to accomplish with these stories? I'm hoping to spark the imagination. I'm hoping to contribute in my own way to raising awareness. The Green Majority has done a great job of this, and there are other people working and talking about these issues. I think that they're of such import that they need to be elevated to the same level of awareness of the climate crisis in general and and of the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. So I think that we need to continue to bring these stories to people's awareness and hopefully uh, lead them to start asking critical questions about what can be done to uh, address these issues. I think that when we do things that, that recognize fully the humanity of everybody and helps everybody to, to live equitably, then we enhance our own humanity. And I hope it will encourage people to take action. Thank you so much. Adia Junaid, we'll be having you back real soon, I believe, in a few weeks to dive deeper again into uh, John Lewis's legacy of environmentalism. And then from there, all these other topics that you have mentioned. Thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks so much for your interest. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.